The theme is distinguishing the true gospel from false gospels, or I would qualify distortions or obscurings, underminings of the gospel. Begin with a verse, Philippians 1, 7. You are all partakers with me of grace in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That is a very encouraging verse to me at this moment. You and I together are partakers of the grace in confirming and defending the gospel. It takes grace to confirm and defend the gospel. It's a good thing to confirm and defend the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Now, I'm doing that right now. I am with fear and trembling, working out my salvation in defending the gospel for God is at work in me. That's grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Nevertheless, I worked harder than any of them. That's Paul talking, not me. Nevertheless, I worked harder than any of them. It was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul is saying, when you undertake to defend and confirm the gospel, which you should often do, depend on grace. And what I love about verse 7 of Philippians 1 is it says, you are partners with me in the grace that we experience in defending the gospel. So I, I have great confidence that at this moment, grace is coming down from heaven on us. So I'd like to pray and agree with that and ask for its abundance. So let's ask him. We have strong encouragement now, Lord, that grace is what we need, empowering grace to defend and confirm the gospel. We can't do this on our own. But we will do what we can do and then say, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So come and help us. Guard us from error or putting emphasis where it shouldn't be or failing to put it where it should. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read you now the most important passage on establishing the urgency for this task. This is Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I, I might tell the guy in the booth, you might want to st start that clock up there because I'll go all night if you don't start that 85. There you go. Thank you very much. This is Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Verse 7. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
So there is such a thing as distorting the gospel, eliciting this response. So listen to what he's going to say. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Now, that's how much stock he puts in his original inspired articulation of the gospel when he planted these churches. He says, if an angel shows up and preaches another gospel, or if I show up and preach another gospel, let him be damned. Accursed sounds too soft. Anathema. Verse 9. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I only read that to set the stage to heighten the level of seriousness. We do not live in an age that talks like that. We don't live in an age that believes articulations of the gospel should get anybody riled up or divide professing Christians into different groups or cause us to use strong language or say that anybody is going to be damned for what they believe. We don't live in an age like that. So you're called, if you want to be biblical people, to be really out of step with the way thinking is done today and the sensibilities that are abroad in the wider evangelical movement today. So here's my approach in our minutes together. I want to describe the gospel in uh, six different aspects of it. I think the gospel has six aspects, any one of which you pull out, there is no gospel. They're all absolutely essential, not a little bit essential. And then as I give you each of these six, when I start unpacking them, I'm going to pause with each one and talk about present day distortions or underminings or contradictions of each of these six aspects of the gospel. That's the approach we're going to take. And we'll we'll see if we can get through let me give you another little heads up of how I'm going to think, how I'm going to treat this. On each one of these, you might come back at me. You can do it with the text message if you want. Saying, okay, would that one send you to hell? Can you be in the same church with that one? Should that one be teaching in seminary? And for the most part, I'm going to comment on the distortion without commenting on the level of seriousness. But I'm going to pause at one point and show you how I deal with that issue by way of illustration so that perhaps you could go back, use the way I do it with one, and do it with the others, okay? Because if I did it with all of them, we could not do all six of these aspects of the gospel. So here are the six aspects of the gospel. They all come from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. So I'll read that first. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. Now I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, <clears throat> and by which you are being saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Now, here are my six aspects or elements of the gospel. Number one, the gospel is a plan from before it happened. I get that from the phrase, according to the scriptures. Why does Paul bother to say in verse three, Christ died for us according to the scriptures? The scriptures were written several hundred years before it happened. So what he's saying is, Part of the gospel is it was planned. That's number one. Number two, the gospel involves historical events. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ rose. Number three, the gospel involves the accomplishment of something. Objectively, before you were ever born or had any part in it, Something was accomplished for you in the transaction between the Father and the Son. Verse 3, Christ died for our sin. Something happened to sin on the cross objectively before it happened to you. Number four, the gospel involves an offer. An offer to all Namely, to faith, not to works. If it were an offer to works, there would be no gospel. If you had to buy part of it because Christ didn't buy enough of it, there would be no gospel. Verse 2, if you hold the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Number five, the gospel is an application to you of what was accomplished objectively 2,000 years ago. If what was accomplished there never gets applied to you, it will be of no use to you and there would be no gospel in your case. Verse 2, by which you are being saved. That's the application of what was achieved on the cross for you. Number six, the gospel is an eternal, infinitely happy future destiny for those who believe. If you leave off the plan and say it wasn't planned, if you leave off that it's an event and say there wasn't anything necessarily historical about it, if you leave off the accomplishment and say nothing decisive was achieved or accomplished between the father and the son when he died. If you leave off the offer or say it was by works and not by faith. If you leave off the application to you personally and say, I don't need to believe this is going to happen to me. I don't have to have it applied to me through faith and the Holy Spirit. There's no gospel. And if you don't have a supremely happy future in the presence of God, enjoying him forever, there's no gospel. These six elements are all absolutely essential for the gospel. Any of them drop out, there's no gospel. So that's our task, to unpack and show the biblical foundations for these six elements of the gospel, 
pausing each time in order to note the distortions of our own day and make ourselves and our people careful and protected against being swept away in some very popular distortions of these things. So let's take them one at a time. Number one, the gospel is planned. It is planned. According to the scriptures, he died for our sins. Look at these or listen to these. By the way, these notes here, I got 23 pages. We'll be online as soon as Abraham can shape them up later this evening or tomorrow morning. And so if you're trying to, you know, take notes or all these, just relax and just print it out off the web and, and think, think with me. Let your, let your mind not be spinning, trying to catch up with your pen, but thinking with me and writing questions and make best use of this moment together. Here are passages of Scripture from the Gospels that clearly signify this according to Scripture's plan dimension. John fifteen twenty five. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So the hatred of Jesus that brings him to destruction was written in the Bible. This must happen. John thirteen eighteen, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. The scriptures must be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Judas dipping his bread, written down ahead of time, the plan on the way to the cross. Matthew twenty six fifty five. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. But all of this, all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. All of it, the mobs, Judas, the disciples abandoning the crowds, the thorns, the beating, the beard plucking, the spitting, the nails, the, the, the spear, all of it that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This is a plan. John nineteen twenty four. Let us not tear his garment, but cast lots to see who shall have it. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says they divided my garments among them. So right down to the details of what happens to his clothing, the script has been written. 19 of John, John 19, 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not a bone will be broken. So when the wills of the soldiers were ready to take their bats and smash the calves of these guys... They didn't decide to do that because they were acting the plan. That's the gospel. According to the scriptures, it had to be this way. Acts 4.27. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's the most amazing verse with regard to the plan. Herod, Pilate, the Jewish crowds, the Gentile soldiers, all of them gathered together against your anointed to do what you predestined to take place. It's the plan. When was the plan made? I'll give you two verses for when it was made. Revelation thirteen eight. All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. The plan to see that the Lamb would be slain was the title of a book before the creation of the universe. That's when it was planned in eternity. Here's the second verse. 2 Timothy 1.9. Who saved us, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Grace was flowing through Christ to undeserving sinners before the universe was created. That's when the plan was made. Now, why is that good news? Because I'm arguing this is an essential part of the gospel. You strip away according to scriptures. There was no plan here. This was, well, what was it if it wasn't a plan? Like historical vagaries, just something slipped up here. Something went wrong here. Some horrible coming together of evil has produced a terrible thing. The Son of God is dying. That's not gospel. This is good news because, number one, God was not taken off guard by the horrific deeds against His Son. Number two, sin and death and hell and Satan are not frustrations of God's eternal design, but fit into it. Number three, God's love for us, his willingness to have his son die for us, is not an afterthought. It is eternally deep in the heart of God. Forever it has been planned that you be saved this way. That's a breathtaking thought. Four. It is all the more clear that the events of the gospel were God's doing, not historical turns of fate. He was doing something. And God's a planner. He doesn't do things whimsically. He does things intelligently and wisely and for purpose and according to plan and design. God was at work in the gospel. And fifth, it strengthens and deepens our certainty of God's commitment to us in the gospel. Now, what about distortions and denials of this? So that's point one of what the gospel involves. It involves a plan. What about distortions and denials? 
In evangelicalism today, the most common presupposition brought to the Bible from outside that isn't in the Bible and that governs what is in the Bible in an alien way is the presupposition that human beings must have ultimate self-determination in order to be held accountable for the things they do or to be blamed for the things they don't do or the wrong things they do. That's a presupposition. That's not in the Bible. Many people think it's in the Bible because they've learned it from the time they were teeny. Ultimate self-determination is an absolute prerequisite of being held morally accountable for anything you do. That's a presupposition that I absolutely reject. Not because I have any superior philosophical speculation, but because it won't work in the Bible. It doesn't make any sense of the Bible. The Bible contradicts it over and over again. Therefore, I have no motivation for bringing it to the Bible. I mean, I'm wired to bring things to the Bible because I'm a human being with the brain that's in the image of God. But if I find that what I bring to the Bible keeps wrecking the Bible, making me turn the Bible on its head, I say, okay, I'll leave that one away. I'll send that presupposition away. Now, this presupposition wreaks havoc at several points in the gospel. And it certainly wreaks havoc here because it leads people away from what I've just been saying. It, it causes people to say it just can't be. It cannot be that God so governs the acts of sinful men that they do the worst deeds that have ever been done. That presupposition resists with all of its might that God could plan the murder of his son, which can only happen through the sinful acts of murderers. You know, we don't often think that Arminianism is an assault on the gospel at the level of its plan. We usually think that's later at the level of its application through faith will get there. But right here, I'm pointing out the way most Americans are taught to think about their wills and about their moral accountability and about the way God relates to them undermines the gospel as plan. And if there's no plan, there's no gospel. Big things are at stake here. People don't realize it. I'm thrilled that we can have inconsistencies in our lives and still be saved. And I will comment more on that later. This would be one of those places, I think. So I think that's the only thing I would point out. There would probably be other distortions you could point to, but be aware of that one. Now we're at the second point of the gospel, namely the gospel as event. First was the gospel as plan, and now the gospel as event. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. That's a historical event. It's not mythological. That's real, touchable, watchable, hearable, smellable event. Death on a cross 
He was buried and he was raised from the dead physically. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. So you can see how Paul thinks about this. That's just a few verses later down in chapter 15. If, if Christ did not physically rise from the dead, my preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We're still in our sins. Those who've died in Christ have died and perished completely. There is no gospel if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and didn't die historically on the cross. Luke 24, 36. As they were walking about, I'm sorry, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus is at pains to say, it happened. I really died. I'm really alive. I really have a body. And Paul is at pains to say, if that's not true, there's no gospel. Now, distortions abound. I, I don't think they abound in evangelicalism, and I'm thankful. But they abound in liberal Christianity like well, to go back a generation to my graduate days, Rudolf Bultmann wrote a book, Mythology in the New Testament. And, you know, his, his famous program was called Demythologization. And what he, he was an existentialist and largely influenced by existential, existential thinkers of his day, the ones that everybody was wowed about when I was in college in the 60s, Camus and Sartre and, and those funny dramas like Waiting for Godot where you sit and watch a man sitting in a barrel for an hour and a half. You don't know what I'm talking about. Thank God you don't know what I'm talking about. Although postmodernism is, is not all that much different. There, there was a good deal more honesty back then. The 60s had a few things going for them. Not many. He was influenced by existentialism. And when he looked at the resurrection and decided as a 20th century man, I cannot believe in the resurrection. Therefore, what does it mean? It means the resurrection of hope. It means the resurrection of the church. It means the resurrection of faith. He demythologizes. He takes out the physical, historical component and he, put, he gives it an existential calling. It's what it does to you when you think about this story. That's what he did. Today, Bishop... Shelby, John Shelby, Selby Spong uh, writes like this, or this is a quote about his uh, article in um, Insights magazine when he was critiquing the passion of Christ by Gibson. The idea that a convicted felon like Jesus would be given a burial attended by such splendor is obviously not history. Meaning being buried with 100 pounds of spices. The probable fate of the crucified Jesus was to be thrown with other victims into a common unmarked grave. The general consensus of New Testament scholars is that whatever the, the Easter experience was, it dawned first in the minds of the disciples who had fled to Galilee for safety, driving us to the conclusion that the burial story in the Gospels is legendary. Takes your breath away. It is so groundless what he's saying. Totally groundless. Just takes your breath away. 
that you can sell books making that kind of absurd claim. But there they are, along with Islam, denying either that he died or that he was buried or that he rose and thus undermining the gospel. Number three, the gospel is an accomplishment. In and of itself, before we ever come on the scene, something happened between God the Father and God the Son in the death and resurrection that achieved something forever. What? What did it achieve? Let me list the main ones. In his death, Christ bore our sins. First Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him to be sin. That's a historical event, a historical reality. When Christ died, he was bearing our sin. God was counting him to be sinner, not with his own sin, but our sin. That was happening. That's historical. That's objective. You don't have anything to do with that. Believe it or don't believe it, it happened there. Secondly, he paid the price for our redemption. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's over. That doesn't happen in the mass. That is over. Once for all, a price was paid, and the price was so extraordinary, nothing can be added to it. Number three. He endured God's wrath and condemnation in our place. We call this propitiation. Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Whose sin did he condemn? Mine. Whose flesh did he condemn it in? Christ's. That means God's anger, God's wrath, God's holy indignation will not fall on me because it fell on him. That was achieved on Good Friday once and for all. Or to put it another way, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. There was a curse on my head. The law pronounced it. Those who don't obey and keep the law are under a curse. They will perish. That was on my head. And God put it on Christ. He became a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And lastly, he achieved and completed at the cross a life of absolutely perfect obedience to the law. 
The cross was the consummation of a life of unwavering faith in his father and obedience to his father's will. He never sinned. Obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Philippians 1, 8, 2, 8. Now, at this point, we raise the question of limited atonement. To affirm what it means and then to look at some distortions of the accomplishments of Christ. What, what does historically the church, the Reformed church mean by limited atonement? I'm not happy with the term and you probably aren't either because it sounds so limiting and negative. There are better words and I'll give you a few in a minute. Here's what it means. It means that when Christ died... On the cross, paying the price for us, completing obedience for us, bearing wrath for us, absorbing sin for us. He decisively accomplished that for his own, his sheep, his elect. He decisively accomplished it. He didn't just make it accomplishable. He did it. He took away sin from a group of people. He took away wrath from a group of people. He provided righteousness for a group of people. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For the sheep. John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this than that someone lays down his life for his friends. He lays down his life for his friends. Ephesians 2, 20, 5, 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He really accomplished everything for his church. So the right name for it would be successful atonement or definitive atonement or triumphantly effective atonement. Now, the controversial part of that is that people think that therefore you can't offer the death of Christ to the world and say that he died for them. But what I find helpful is this. If you just talk to your average Arminian who doesn't want to believe in limited atonement and say, now, okay, what do you mean? Just tell me what you mean so I can take my stand and either agree with you or not agree with you. And almost inevitably what they will say that they mean, and I don't think this is a, a caricature, they will say, what I mean by his dying for all is that he died for all such that Anyone who believes will be forgiven, will be justified, will be saved. And I say, well, I agree with that. Absolutely, I agree with that. My ministry depends on that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that if anybody believes they have eternal life. Absolutely, the cross is universal in that conditional sense. Anyone who believes in Christ will have all the benefits of the cross. To, to which they would then respond and say, well, what's the argument? I would say, 
Maybe there doesn't have to be one. But I believe more than you do, not less. I believe that in addition to doing what you just said he does on the cross, he does something else. He's not only making salvation available to all who believe everywhere in the world so that you can freely offer whosoever will may come. He's also decisively purchasing by a dowry his bride. In addition to what you say, not instead of what you say, in addition to what you say, Calvinists believe more about the atonement, not less. They believe what Arminians believe plus, not minus. Texts. Romans. I'll come back to that one. Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll for you have ransomed men for God from every tribe and tongue and nation and have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. When Christ died, he ransomed people from the nations. He didn't ransom the nations the same way he ransomed his bride. Or John 17, 6 9 and 19, Jesus prays like this. This is very crucial. Listen to this. I have manifested my name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So I have manifested my name. I have manifested. Get it right here. Your name, your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So God takes some men and he gives them to Jesus out of the world And Christ manifests his name to them. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. So they were yours. You knew who they were. They were yours. And you took them and you gave them to me. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you gave me out of the world. Because they are yours. Verse 19. And for your sake... For their sake, I'm sorry, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be consecrated in the truth. For their sake, the ones you gave me out of the world, I now consecrate myself as I go to the cross. Romans 8.32. This may be my most favorite verse in the Bible. He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all. Now, there you have the decisive accomplishment of the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not with him freely give us all things? Now, there's a logic there. And the logic goes like this. Paul contemplates the fact that the father did the hardest thing, namely, He gave his infinitely holy, infinitely valuable, infinitely above reproach son to be spit upon and beaten and mocked and killed with the most painful death. He gave him up. And Paul is so amazed at that greatest of all sacrifices. He infers the lesser and says, if he did that, then he will 
give us all things with him. Which means that the death of Jesus secures everything for his own. The problem that your Armenian friend will bring up then is 1 John 2, 2, which says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He is the wrath remover, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So what does John mean? And my answer to that is that John means exactly the same thing in 1 John 2, 2 that he meant when he recorded John eleven fifty one to 52, which goes like this. The priest prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. You hear the, the almost identical wording there? He is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the world. He died not for the nation only, but to gather into one all the children of God scattered abroad. And I think that is what he means by propitiation for the whole world. Namely, as the gospel spreads throughout the whole world, the whole world becomes the object of his saving work in that he gathers children of God from out of all the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, just like Revelation 5, 9 said, that he ransomed men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I don't think it means every single person had his sins propitiated, and I don't think John takes us there. In other words, John gives us the verse that is usually considered the greatest problem for limited atonement, and John gives us the strongest statements to the effect that there is such a thing as a definitive, triumphant accomplishment of the atonement for the bride of Christ, the friends, the sheep of Christ. Now, all of that is exposition. What about the distortions and denials of the accomplishment of the cross? And here I have, how many? Three, four. Number one, universalism. Christ, they say, because they agree with Piper up to a point, Christ effectively on the cross saved everybody. So everybody will be saved because otherwise it's a diminishing of the cross. George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis, most significant mentor, believed that. And so do many people believe that in and outside of evangelicalism. How wide is the mercy of God? Namely, it's as wide as the universe and no one will be lost in the end. That teaching runs into the problem of John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on you if you don't believe in the Son. You've got to believe. Now, they might say, but they will. 
he will bring everybody to believe. George McDonald believed somebody could spend a million years in hell and the hell would get burned out of them eventually and they would be saved. That's exactly what he said. Hell is defined as a long purgatory and nobody will have to stay there forever, forever because the justice and the mercy of God mingle like that, which runs into the problem of the amazing language used for the eternity of the horrors of hell. Jesus talked about them going away into eternal punishment. And John, in chapter 14, verse 11 of Revelation, talks about the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. It's the strongest Greek expression for eternity that can be written. I hope that even though your emotions may from time to time move toward universalism, that you will submit yourself to Scripture. The second distortion of what was achieved on the cross was that everybody, everybody's sins were covered except one, unbelief. I've run into this personally. I don't know what to call it. I don't really know who teaches it, but I bump into it from time to time in lay people. They say, well, since uh, the Bible clearly, like you said, shows how wonderful the accomplishment of the cross is for all the sins... The only thing that would send anybody to hell is unbelief. That's the only sin that's not forgiven. Everything else is covered by the blood. But not belief, not unbelief. The problem with that is that Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul does not believe that all of that was covered by blood. And there's no wrath coming for it. That is why the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is going to come upon your sin, not just your unbelief. Number three, the atonement accomplishes potential salvation for all but definitive salvation for none. And that's your typical run-of-the-mill evangelicalism and Arminianism and Wesleyanism. That what was accomplished at the cross was nothing definitive or decisive for any particular person, but only a general availability. And then your triumph over your own unbelief must be wrought by you because it wasn't purchased by Jesus. I believe that the blood of Christ bought the triumph of grace over my rebellion. Not just over other things. And therefore, I think Arminianism is a flaw, a distortion of the achievement of the cross in taking away from it and putting in the human will what is supposed to be the achievement of Christ on the cross, namely the decisive overcoming of my own rebellion. One last distortion. What I've been describing is substitutionary atonement or penal substitution. And you know, I'm sure, how... Amazingly under 
attack that is in scholarly circles and now in wider pastoral circles today, led by some popular works in England and here to the effect that if the father does what you just said he does, this is cosmic child abuse of the most horrific kind and beneath the moral standing of Jesus Christ. And I'll read you Steve Chalk's words who wrote the book, The Lost Message of Jesus. I remember reading this in an airport in London and being so sad. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, this is even more sweeping, deeper than that, however, is that such a concept, what's a concept? The concept of a of a father with wrath and anger and holy indignation, choosing a son who didn't do anything wrong and punishing that wrong in him. That's the concept that he thinks is cosmic child abuse and and horrible and bad and to be rejected and a stumbling block to faith as he rewrites the Bible to make it more palatable for British people. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. That is so breathtaking because the Bible says, in this is love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place that is love. And he's saying it contradicts love. It's just breathtaking. This is Mr. Evangelicalism on all the talk shows in Britain. Weep. If the cross, he says, is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus own teaching to love your enemies. And to refuse to repay evil with evil. Do you you hear how sweeping that is? Hell has got to go. All punishment has to go because since God said, love your enemies and do unto others, return good for evil, he can't punish anybody. And he certainly can't punish his innocent son for others and call it love. So how could we get to a point where people still have the gall to use the word evangelical? And speak blasphemous words like this. That was the third point of the gospel. It's accomplishment. Now here's the fourth. The gospel is an offer. An offer. Sorry. The jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe. So the offer of the gospel is free. Just believe. Just receive it. John 3.16. If 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just receive it. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. Or Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, what about distortions here? Distortions and denials. I'm going to leave aside Roman Catholicism and some forms of the disciples of Christ, which I think profoundly undermine the gospel by the way they teach the baptismal regeneration, by the way they disconnect new birth or regeneration from word of God believed that disconnection. I think we should labor with all our might to put those back together. Word of God believed and regeneration simultaneous together, never happening apart from each other. But I'm leaving that aside, though it's serious. I want to focus on how faith alone is being obscured today in other ways. You could perhaps lump them all under the new perspective on Paul. But there are some very old ones here in that new perspective. I'm just going to mention two, two ways that it happens. These are these are ways that in the present uh, scholarly milieu, which is now filtering down through popular writers. The offer of the gospel to faith alone is obscured, distorted, so that something other than faith as the receiving of Christ is brought in alongside or put in it or replacing it. This is very close to the center of the gospel and very subtle in the way it's happening. Here's the first one of these two. In the new perspective, by and large, the hallmark is the phrase works of the law. We hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Works of the law in the new perspective does no longer mean moral works. It means ceremonial works like circumcision, Sabbath keeping and law food laws. So that what's being denied is that a person can exclude anybody from the covenant community by setting up these regulatory ceremonial laws. And so when he says that justification is not uh, is by faith, apart from works of the law, he means you are included in the family of God without making people jump through these hoops. It is not about moralism. It's not about legalism. It's not about performance. That's not what Paul is concerned with. And when you establish that, the door flings wide to making the means an agent or instrument of justification something more than faith alone. Because you have nullified the clear biblical negation No works of the law included here because you just said, oh, that doesn't refer to not committing adultery and not killing and not being proud. It just refers to these ethnic exclusionary rules. It is happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere to my friends. Works of the law do include. Moral behavior. 
you were given my book, The Future of Justification, a book like that doesn't come into being easily. I really, really care about this issue. Nothing has occupied more of my discretionary time for the last 10 years than the doctrine of justification. And it's very sad what's happening and how some of you are just being swept away with how trendy and cool it all sounds. That's number one. The reinterpretation of the term works of the law, saying that what's not being what's being negated is not works in general, but only ceremonial works opens the door to other kinds of works becoming the instrument by which we are justified. Here's the second one. Faith itself today among many young exegetes is being conflated with or identified with faithfulness. So we are justified by faith means we are justified by faithfulness. You have thus then turned the word faith, which is a receiving of Christ as my righteousness into a virtue itself, which God then rewards with righteousness. Now, Andrew Fuller from 200 years ago has written more perceptively on the new perspective than anybody I know. And his meticulous dealing with the issues of his own day, one of them is called Sandemanianism, are so unbelievably relevant. I really do commend the works of Andrew Fuller to you. And I'm thinking that I perhaps should not take the time to read all of these quotes. Let me just read one of them. Whatever holiness there is in faith, So he's wrestling with people in his day who were saying faith is a virtue. It's a good thing to believe. It's not a bad thing. It's not a neutral thing. It's a good thing to believe. It's an act of the soul and it's a good act of the soul. Therefore, it's a work. It's a virtue. Faithfulness. That was there's nothing new about this. To which Fuller responded like this. Whatever holiness there is in faith, it is not this, but the obedience of Christ that constitutes our justifying righteousness. Whatever other properties the magnet may possess, it is in pointing invariably to the north that it guides the mariner. And whatever other properties faith may possess, it is as receiving Christ and bringing us into union with him that it justifies. That is so good. That is so right. Of course, faith is a good thing to have. Of course, it is produced by the Holy Spirit and he doesn't produce bad things. The question is, when it comes to the instrument by which we're justified, how does it work? And it works as a receiving It is the one distinctly receiving act of the human soul. We receive Christ 
And in receiving Christ, we are united to Christ. And in Christ, his righteousness counts for ours because our, even our faith is imperfect and inadequate to meet God's demands. So those two distortions are very, very serious, I think. Turning faith into faithfulness or regarding it as a virtue that God rewards and treating the works of the law as not excluding all works, but only excluding a certain brand of works. Hold fast, brothers and sisters. Hold fast to faith alone and know what you mean by it. Number five. The gospel is an application to our our souls. There are eight of them. I'll mention them. Regeneration. And regeneration is the one that spawns all the others. It is a work of God. And it was purchased by the cross. The regeneration couldn't come to a sinner if God had not purchased sinners. Second, eternal life. In fact, regeneration and the arrival of eternal life are synonymous virtually. When, when the Holy Spirit or the Word or Christ touches the dead heart, regeneration happens. That is, life is imparted. Third, faith. I put them in this order, even though I believe they're simultaneous. I've been trying to explain this for weeks to my church. Strike a match. Which comes first, fire or heat? You can't, you can't make that distinction. Where there's fire, there's heat. Where there's fire, there's light. Which comes first, regeneration or faith? They're simultaneous. Or I, the other image I used was like a shock. In fact, I told them the story about the time when I was a teenager and I sat down on the spark plug of my lawnmower while it was running. And it knocked me all the way across the garage because this is a very big muscle. You know, when you when you touch a live, a live socket, this, these are little muscles and you go like this. But when you touch this muscle by sitting on a spark plug, it knocks you across the garage. There's no time lapse between sitting on the spark plug and the reaction of the muscle. It's just bang. It's just like that. So here comes here comes the electricity of God's regenerating Holy Spirit. And the moment it touches this heart, there's there's life or faith. Simultaneous, and yet the new birth is the cause of faith. Fourthly, forgiveness of sins. Fifthly, justification. Sixthly, reconciliation. Seventhly, adoption. And eighth, sanctification and consummated glorification. Now, those are the experiences in your heart of the accomplishment from 2,000 years ago. These eight things didn't exist for any of you a hundred years ago. They happened when you were converted. Now, what are, what are the distortions to these things? Let me, here's where we do expect Arminianism to come in, and I'll, I'll mention how it comes. Um, Wesleyanism, or... Arminianism, and here I'm just speaking about about maybe 30 million evangelicals believe this. Namely, that we, by our 
will decisively choose to believe and therefore get regenerated. But you have to be careful. I don't want to overstate it. Wesley was very a very bright man, and he knew that prevenient grace was necessary for dead sinners. He read his Bible. And therefore he said, prevenient grace comes to all men. And prevenient grace enables the dead heart, the rebellious heart, the fleshly carnal heart to be freed from its slavery to bondage to the point where it could, if it would, on its own, believe. So God gets it started. So he's not Pelagian. Pelagianism says you don't need any grace and you don't need any Holy Spirit because that would mean you're not morally accountable if you needed it. You can jump this start by yourself. You can choose from deadness to life, from unbelief to belief. Wesley didn't go there. He said, I know grace is necessary. I know the Holy Spirit's necessary. But he wouldn't go to where he he wouldn't go all the way to say the Holy Spirit carries you all the way to faith. And he wouldn't because he couldn't bear the implications of unconditional election and irresistible grace. So it jumps start and then it leaves you. And now you have the, the ability to tip this way or that way. And what makes the difference ultimately? You do. That's not a distortion. That's just clear as a bell. I, I, I underline phrases when I read these these folks, ultimate self-determination enters after prevenient grace. And at that moment, there stands somebody whom God has given the ability to go one way or the other. But which way will they go? Ultimate self-determination. How serious is that? Now, here's the point where I said I would pause and reflect about seriousness. How do you even think about this? How serious is it when Arminianism or Wesleyanism attributes to the will what is in fact owing to the spirit and to the cross? So I am taking for myself and I am taking credit for myself that I Believe this was not decisively purchased for me in the cross and this is not decisively worked for me by the spirit. I decisively do this. How serious is that? Here are my reflections. Maybe I'll just read them to you to keep from getting lost or carried away. Must one believe that faith is decisively caused by God through regeneration? Or can one be saved believing that faith causes regeneration and that I cause my own faith ultimately? The issue comes down to this. Is the heart relationship to God one of utter reliance on God's grace in spirit-wrought humility such that God gets the glory for all of my salvation, both accomplishment and application. Is the heart there? 
even if the head isn't. That's what I'm asking. Can the heart be truly humble and reliant in this way while the mind espouses a theology that claims that human will is taking credit for what the humble heart is really depending on God to provide? You see this scenario I'm setting up? The heart of a Wesleyan or an Arminian really is born again. I'm, I'm asking, can this be really is born again, really is humble, really is God reliant, really wants God to get all the credit for all of salvation. And their head just can't let go of some implications they see. And so they say, no, I have to up to a point after prevenient grace, take over and be the decisive cause. Is that possible? And my answer is yes. Yes, I, I, I think millions of people are saved that way. I'm scared not to believe it. I could be wrong. There are those who are totally in reliance on God in their heart, but who fail to see with their minds that total reliance on God includes reliance on God for reliance. They, they don't see that. They just, they don't have, whatever the reason, they, they, they can't make those connections that sounds like, it would make God unjust, make God unloving. You know, I've read, you know, these books that have been written, why well, I'm not a Calvinist and so on. I, I, I go to the index. Am I mentioned in this book? And I usually am. So I go see, I don't know what they say. And uh, they don't argue. They don't argue exegetically. It's all very deductive. Namely, God is a God of love. He's loving. He can't be the way you say he is if he's loving. End of argument. Those people ought to hold on to the love of God. You know, when I get into an argument with somebody, I say, look, don't let me convince you to believe in a God you think is unjust. Don't let me convince you to believe in a God that you think is unloving. Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't let me take you there. Only go where I'm going if you can go with a just God and a loving God. I would rather have you resting in the love of God, resting in the justice of God, with your head confused about these things, than for you to say, okay, you win the logic, you win the exegesis, and I'm embracing him, and I think he's awful. Don't go there. Arminianism in its popular form, that is most evangelicalism, says we are unable without divine assistance to believe. So there's prevenient grace. And then we make the decisive choice. That is far superior, the history of the church has taught, than Pelagianism. Pelagianism, which says you don't need any grace, you don't need any Holy Spirit to make this decision to move from deadness to life. That's been considered a heresy for 1,600 years. The other hasn't been. And I'm not eager to be a heresy namer. I just want to point out distortions and deflections and obscurings and underminings without making final judgment about people's salvation. So I'm arguing that you can be intellectually an Arminian and you can spiritually be regenerate and born again. Here's, here's a more relevant question. 
can they teach in your church? Can they serve as elders? Now, my answer is not after 1990. In other words, I came to a church that didn't know beans about theology. They didn't know what questions to ask me when they interviewed. And I had to tell them, ask me some questions about Calvinism. Ask me about my eschatology. Ask me about the atonement. And they didn't even know what I was talking about. That's the way most churches are in America. They just want a nice guy. And my goodness, he's got a doctorate. This is cool. Put doctor. They put Dr. John Piper on the sign the week before I came. I made him I made him take it off the first week. I said, that's not what we're about here. You don't do that. You don't brag about this guy that way. He's Pastor John Piper. Pastor. That is a noble title. They're so oh, we got a doctor. So it just gets in the way. No. No, you, here's the rule of thumb. I'll I'll read you my rule of thumb. Where's my rule of thumb? The more responsible a person is to shape the thoughts of others about God, the less should his bad doctrine be tolerated. So the proportionality here, the more he's responsible for shaping doctrine, the less you should tolerate his bad doctrine. Therefore, church members should be not excommunicated for their quirky views about various things, but elders and seminary and college teachers should be held to a high standard of orthodoxy and full biblical faithfulness. And here's one last practical question on that. If you're in a denomination where that's not agreed with, namely, we do let people teach. In our seminaries and in our colleges. And we do let pastors, pastor churches in our denomination who are Wesleyan and Arminian and sometimes almost Pelagian. Should you leave that denomination? And my answer to this point has been no, because I'm in one like that. The professors at Bethel College and Seminary are all over the map on this. In fact, my view is very Small representation. Pastors are all over the map in the Baptist General Conference. I, I'm sorry about that. I wish it weren't the case. I wish there were a standard that was higher. But my little, my little horn a few years ago <coughs> got silenced pretty quickly when I was trying to resist open theism. And I thought, well, if we can't see open theism as a heresy, then I guess there's not much point in arguing about this little one here. So I'm there, and, and you just have to ask how much good is done by leaving and how much good might be done by staying. And you preach enough and you write enough and you talk enough so people know where you stand, so you're not being implicated by the mistakes of others, and, and you stay. Or if you don't, I, I wouldn't get mad at you either. I, I don't think the Bible is really clear on that level of separatism. Um, one other distortion of the application of the gospel, namely the denial of imputation of Christ's righteousness. This is different from the first criticism of the new perspective, namely that the doctrine of faith alone is being undermined 
in the new perspective. This is a, a very broad and separate denial of the doctrine of imputation. Robert Gundry wrote two articles, and I wrote a whole book, Counted Righteous in Christ, to try to show why he, he's wrong in denying the existence of the doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And he simply says, it's not in the Bible. That's why we shouldn't believe it. And I try to say, it is in the Bible. All the reformers in the last 500 years of the Protestant church has not been mistaken on this. N.T. Wright considers the doctrine of imputation as it's been historically framed as a category confusion and con um, nonsense. Pages 20 and 21 in the book, if you want to read the summary of that. Others are saying we're not imputed the righteousness of Christ. What imputation means is that we are counted as in the status of the vindicated, not that a righteousness of an alien person, an obedience of perfection, is counted as being ours. No imputation transfer like that, simply the regarding of me as vindicated in the courtroom and the argument being, this is not what righteousness means. It doesn't mean in the relevant texts moral righteousness taken from one and counted as belonging to another. Righteousness simply means status of vindicated. I think that's wrong. And I've tried to develop the reasons I, I think if, if you get the notes online, I wrote a, a talk at the ETS meeting last November called this justification and the diminishing work of Christ. And there I unfold as fully as I was able my support for these this defense of imputation. So let me close um, by mentioning three bad effects of that denial and then the sixth point, and, and this will just take a few minutes. When you deny the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, I believe you diminish the work of Christ because he really did complete his obedience there, according to Philippians 2.8, in such a way that it would be there for you. So that when you stand before the Father and he says, don't you know that my law requires perfection for you to be here? Do you have it? I will say I do have it because I have cast myself by faith upon the mercy of your son. And because of my simple receiving of him, his righteousness counts as mine. You provided it, Father, and he's my only hope to stand your scrutiny here as you demand perfection from me. I plead his perfection. I think that's the right answer. I think the Father will be pleased with that answer. And how many today are stumbling over whether they can give that answer. And what they're putting in its place is a vacuum. They say that the forgiveness of sins is all we need, not the imputation of righteousness. Which leads me to my second. The first is that the cross is being diminished. The second is your soul from time to time has thoughts and affections and troubles and guilt that are tailored by God to be met 
with the provision of imputed righteousness, not forgiveness of sins. There's a mystery here. I don't know why sometimes the guilt that you feel as you go to bed or get up in the morning and then you try to apply the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins and it doesn't feel quite adequate. I don't know why. You'd think it would be adequate, wouldn't you? But the Lord whispers, I have another gift for you. The righteousness of my son. And for some reason, that truth does it. It it worked for John Bunyan as he walked through the fields and he was so depressed out of his mind and suicidal at age 25 that the only way he was spared from disillusionment and, and suicide was that the thought entered his mind, your righteousness is in heaven. It can't get bigger and it can't get smaller. It is in heaven. It is Christ. And his life was changed. And nothing else would do it. And what I'm saying is those people that are stripping us of this today are taking away from many languishing souls this precious gift. And the third sadness about this is that when you diminish the cross and you let the soul languish without this gift of relief, you are removing the foundation of God's one of the foundations, at least, of God's being totally for us, which frees us for radical risk-taking obedience in the world. Love. Love is being undermined by these things. Finally, number six, the gospel is a happy future, a supremely happy future, and that happy future is different from what so many preachers Preach it to be. So I wrote another book. Called God is the gospel. So the last two or three minutes. Let me just try to drive this home. The gospel is preached properly. So by highlighting the fact that. Our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is removed. Wrath is taken away. Escape from hell is granted. Heaven is opened. Conscience is cleaned. Access to dead loved ones in heaven is given. And so many good things come our way through the gospel. And then they stop. The prosperity gospel is is only different from that in degree. Because if in trying to show why the gospel is good news, you give everything but the ultimate reason for why it's good news, I fear that in the end, the gospel itself will be undone. The goal of the gospel is not the forgiveness of sins. The goal of the gospel is not justification. The goal of the gospel is not escape from hell. The goal of the gospel is not entrance into everlasting resurrection, health and pleasure. The goal of the gospel is God. That is, I'll just read you a couple of verses and we'll be done. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered for 
sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And there's nothing after that. God isn't a stepping stone to a reward. He is the reward. Don't don't step on him towards health, wealth, and prosperity. Don't step on him towards forgiveness. Don't step on him towards escape from hell. Don't step on him towards reunion with your mother or your wife. Don't step on him and use him for anything. Don't step on him and use him for church planting. Don't step on him and use him for growing a big church. Don't step on him and use him for doctrinal precision. Don't use him. He's the end. He's not the means. He's the end. He's where forgiveness is going. He's where reconciliation is going. He's where justification is going. He's where propitiation is going. Unless you say this, your people are going to be forgiven television watchers. They will never break free of their idols. They'll just feel better about them. And your idol might be church planting. Mine might be writing or preaching or what I'm doing right now and trying to explain things. This might be my idol. There's no respecter of idols here. Another verse. I'll close with these two. They're in the same place. John 17. Father, I desire. This is Jesus praying for you now. So be be glad about what he's praying because he knows better what to pray for you than you do. So when you hear him pray for you, be glad. Be glad about this. Father, this is John 17, 24. Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's the end, folks. There's nothing better except this. Verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me, this is the Father talking to the Son, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. When I hear Jesus pray for me, Father, I pray that my servant John would someday be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you gave me before the foundation of the world. I want John to be here. And the reason I want him here is because I'm great and I want him to see me. I want him to see me in my magnificence because I have designed him and you have designed him to be totally and ultimately satisfied when he sees me. When I hear him pray like that, I say, but Jesus, something's got to happen to me because I don't have within me the capacity to enjoy you the way you would be enjoyed if I did. I need not only to see you, I need a super added capacity to delight in you that would be worthy of eternity, which is why he prayed verse 26. I'll read it again. I made known to them your name. I'll continue to make it known 
so that the love with which you loved me, the Father sees and loves the Son, and there's no mercy in it. It is totally eros. The Son is infinitely worthy of the Father's delight. That's what this love is. Infinite delight flows from the Father to the Son. And he says, that's what I pray will be in my servant John. So that when his eyes fall upon the risen Christ, namely me, with all my glory, there will be the Father's love for me that is bigger than anything he could ever imagine. That's the end of the gospel There is no final glorious good to the gospel if it doesn't end there. The distortions are everywhere. And there's no point in pointing any finger. Just look in the mirror. We all battle every day with alternative satisfactions that rise higher than our satisfaction for King Jesus. And it ought not to be so for the gospel's sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are very, very worthy. You are infinitely valuable and Jesus is infinitely valuable. And so I'm pleading that this sinner who I fear from time to time is more taken up with the pleasures of commending Christ than he is with Christ might be slain. I would rather die than drift away into idolizing preaching or growing a church or my wife or health or heaven. I want to be a gospel man who attains by grace to the end for which he died. Namely, that we might see you and enjoy you, be satisfied in you above all things forever and ever. Amen.